0: Hello, uh, my name is Leia Ajayi. I'm a consultant urologist from the Royal Free Hospital in London, England. And on behalf of the Endourology Society and the Journal of Endourology, I welcome you to this podcast sponsored by Cook Medical. Today we have two excellent um, faculty here and we're discussing issues around uh, ureteric stents. Uh, I have Dr. Brad Schwartz, uh, professor and chairman of the urology and director of laparoscopy and robotic surgery in STOES in South Illinois University School of uh, Medicine. Welcome. Thank you, Liv. My other faculty member, again, who doesn't need introduction, Dr. Noah Kanbassa who's assistant professor at University of California at Davis. Welcome, Dr. Kanbassa Thanks so much, happy to be here. Excellent. Well, listen, uh, let's let's just go straight down into conversation here, really. Uh, we're, we're talking today about ureteric stents. Brad, if you don't mind me calling you Brad, could you please tell me what your thoughts are, what your indications are for putting ureteric stents?
1: In my mind, I kind of break it down into need for chronic stenting and then those patients who need it for more acute processes. Chronic stenting would be either patients we uh, either shouldn't operate on because of comorbid conditions, They don't care for surgery. They don't want a definitive procedure, or the disease process would uh, necessarily warrant chronic drainage, but primary repair may not be indicated. So those those are kind of the chronic stent patients who uh, will have them for a long time. They need changes periodically. And then I guess I break it to the the acute patients, those patients who either present acutely with obstruction, let's just say stone disease, and they need a stent for uh, either obstruction or infectious reasons or those who require stent after procedures, mainly ureteroscopic procedures. And so I kind of break it down into those, and that's how i categorize them in my mind, what type of stent we might use, what type of adjunct things we use for stenting, et cetera. Okay, thank you. An interesting area that a lot of my residents often ask me,
0: if I can come to you, Noah, is really they ask you, how does all students ask us, how does stents work? I mean, what what is the value of a, a ureteric stent?
2: So I think I mean, the primary purpose is, is decompression, be it for pain, infection, or loss of kidney function in a symptomatic state. And then obviously, by putting a stent in, urine is either going to flow around the stent or you'll have a little bit of flow sometimes through the lumen of the stent to help drain completely. So yeah, it's a stents work by decompressing a bypass around whatever obstructive process you're, you're worried about. Excellent, thank you. Uh,
0: a common situation we find ourselves in really is decide that stents are made of different sizes and different diameter. When uh, you're inserting a stent, Brad, how do you decide the length of the stent that you're going to put in?
1: So that's uh, always a struggle, right? You always wanna leave the correct size. You don't want it too yes. long, you don't want it too short. There are a number of articles and a number of publications that might lead to uh, you know, accurate sizing. However, in my practice, I honestly, I look at the renal pelvis or the upper pole of the kidney where I want to target the proximal curl. And what I do under fluoro is I actually look and see what rib that is located. It's unpublished. Uh, I I don't know how scientific it is, quite frankly. But if it's near or above the 12th rib, then I know I'm probably going to need a 26 or greater. And if it's uh, below, then I think you could probably get by with a 24. I will tell you that there's an adage, at least when I was in training and such, that you know, 80% of the people can use a 24-centimeter stent. Lately, over the last several years, I, I don't know whether my patient population is getting stretched out and longer, but I have kind of changed that to a 26 as my go-to, merely out of need for, especially for the acute stenters, right? If they're going to only have a stent for five or seven days, I don't think a longer stent in the bladder is going to lead to that much more symptoms. So I lean more towards a longer stent. I favor the 26. Usual, I would use a 28. And unusual, I would use a 22.
0: That's interesting. I quite like your technique, though, of looking at uh, the renal pelvis where where it is on the rib. That's a good point of technique. And I'm sure our audience would appreciate that. Noah, your thoughts on uh, how you decide the length of a stent?
2: I will say that I I tend to always size longer because uh, I worry a lot about cost. And what I don't like doing is opening up a stent, finding it too short, and then having to open up another one. So if I'm ever deciding between two sizes, I typically always go a little bit longer. Uh, But I go by patient height primarily. So you know, in general, we say somebody who's 5'6 gets a 26. And so work from there. If they're 5'8, 5'10, we're talking about a 28-centimeter stent, Anything above that is typically a 30 centimeter stent. And then, you know, 5'4, five, 5'2, five, you're talking about a 24 centimeter stent and, and go from there. There's other intraoperative metrics, you know, the where what size sheath you had, and if you use the sheath, where does that sheath lie? And so we can kind of judge and assess based on that. That's interesting. So the minute you meet your patient, you shake them by the hand, you
0: size them up. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. What about multi length stents? Let's talk about multi length stents. Some I don't know whether you're advocates uh, for multi length stents. Let me get your thoughts on that. No, are you a fan of multi length? You know, it's not
2: standard in my practice. The the only I think unique scenario that I've used a multi length is a patient who uh, had an unfortunate tumor and had a really long ureter, and some of the multi length stents come in 32 centimeters, and so it gave us that extra two centimeters length, but. I typically do not.
0: Thank you very much, Noah.
2: Brad, your your feeling
0: or your thoughts on multi lengths?
1: Yeah, I would echo Noah's uh, comments. I I take out a lot more multi length stents, than I put in. I, as yeah. a general rule, I do not have them in my room. I do not use them except for that extreme circumstance where you have a very tortuous ureter, you have an extraordinarily tall person, and you just can't get a twenty eight French uh, stent to lie where you would like it. Okay. Well,
0: we we know the materials that a lot of ureteric stents are made of, uh, of a polyurethane, uh, polymer, silicone, and metallic. Um, what sort of material is your is the stent that you use, uh, Brad? What sort of material is it? and what kind of stent do you prefer? What's your
1: go-to stent? so when when uh, Cook came out with their uh, black silicone stent, uh, there are just a lot of things that appealed to me uh, about that. Uh, number one, it is easy to place. it's uh, easy to see on fluoroscopy. I just use that stent, uh, honestly, routinely for the vast majority of my cases. I think there are stents in the market that are more uh, what we would call lubricious. They're they're more hydrophilic. And so there are a couple of stents out there that are really very, very slick, uh, as you might say. We have such a broad experience with the black silicone stent that I find it extremely rare that we have trouble placing it from a hydrophilic standpoint. I'm not sure that I'm aware of any good literature that would suggest that one of the materials is easier for the patients than an other yeah. material. And I think it's the foreign body effect. I use that stent. I'm familiar with it. I like it. I it's extremely rare. I have incrustation with it. And I can place it very, very easily in all three of their widths. They're six, seven, and eight and a half French. Fantastic. What, uh, what no wire to use, Brad, basically uh, to well, place. yeah, that, that that's a great point. Um I, I wasn't sure if we were going to get into that, Noah, but you know, it does come standard with a um uh, you know, this kind of uh, ridged uh, PTFE uh, 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 wire. I use for 100% of my ureteroscopies and my PCNLs a single angle tip 035 inch hydrophilic wire. So I use a hydrophilic wire for everything I do, and I do not use that wire unless uh, uh, we drop it on the floor. Or, so I don't use the standard wire that comes with the kit unless I lose the other wire for whatever reason, or if I need a second wire, which is rare.
0: I mean, that, that's a good, valid and very uh, good question to ask. No, no, your your take on black silicone stents, are you a fan? Yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, no, I am a fan. Um, I mean, just a side comment. So I, I typically use for most of my ureteroscopies and PCNs, I'll use a, a standard polymer stent. It stays in for a short period of time. Like Brad said, I don't know if there's a huge difference in materials as far as patient symptoms. And for a short period of time, I don't worry a whole lot about encrustation. But I'm, I'm a big fan of black silicone. I switched to... Pretty much 100% black silicone for all my chronic stented patients. Um, really for the the encrustation aspect that Brad had mentioned, mm-hmm. I think we can uh, leave the stents in for, actually our, our data shows that we can leave them in for, for quite a bit longer. It's less yes. ORs for the patient per year. I think it's less cost per year. And, and patients like not having to come back as often. So I have many patients who have switched over to black silicone. I typically use the eight and a half French. I don't have to see them as often every year, which is which is great. Uh, I will say that when I put a black silicon, I typically do put it over a PTFE wire, a stiff PTFE wire. Um, so there is there is some friction there. I don't think it's a problem, but I do notice that compared to polymers, if I'm having trouble, I will use a um a hydrophilic wire and then it, it slides easily. So Okay. I
1: mean, yeah, Lea, let me just let me just add real quick. So you know, Noah touched on the, the time period. You know, in the United States, we have to kind of consider the FDA approval time period. I don't know that a lot of people realize that the stents that we have, almost all of the stents that we have, with the exception of just a couple, are actually FDA approved for 12 months. They're approved for one year. I might have patients referred to me who've been getting stent changes, you know, like every three months or every four months. I just think that's a lot. You know, when we change stents out, we, you know, if they're coming back at four months, if there's no incrustation and they're doing great, I I put them out to six months, seven months. And you just keep extending that time period. Yep until they can prove to us that they really calcify so much that we now have trouble. And now that time period, minus maybe a month or a couple of weeks, that might be their new set point where they don't need a stent change every three or four months. They can, they're can they now out to nine and a half months, and they do great. And that really, you know, it lessens the cost, it lessens the burden, and it really improves their quality of life, I think. There needs to be some thought process into how you change this. Instead of just saying, just come back in four months, we'll do it again.
0: Some patients can go two years. You, you lose some patients to follow up two yeah. years without incrustation. Some yeah, patients yeah. three months. So it's, um, it's probably worthwhile that we do consider the patients and see how they going, especially those with chronic stents. Some of the polyurethane stents, the universal, the Cook Medical ones, there's a the soft and a firm, you know, the soft uh, six-month dwell time and, and the firm is finally can go up to 12 months. I don't know whether you, either of you
1: use those at all. I, I do. I use occasional. Um, I, I I like them. Uh, again, I just I do favor the black silicone, um, yeah. but I, I do use them. And I think you know the softer ones are definitely softer. If you do have an obstruction or something to get through, and, and uh, the firmas are the kind of your go-to stent, then you know you can use the firmer stent, and you might have a little uh, better success at uh, traversing the obstruction. Indeed. Okay, let's slightly switch direction. Really, let's talk about stenting before
0: ureteroscopies. I've been in various ORs around the world, and um, in certain parts of Europe, for sure, they bring the patient in for pre-stenting before their urethroscope. We're talking about stones in the kidney, okay? Before flexible urethrogrenoscopy, they'll bring them in for pre-stenting. In the UK, where we have a health system that doesn't give us that freedom, uh, especially in central London, you do your best to treat a patient the minute they come in, and do you ever, consider pre-stenting a patient before a uh, flexible uretros before like a one centimeter renal stone. Noah can I can I get your thoughts on this please?
2: Yeah um it's not standard. There are select indications where I will. For example, somebody who has a known tight ureter, I would uh go ahead and bring them in. But for the standard patient with a renal stone, I, I do not pre-stent, you know, just to give some scenarios if if i had a patient who had a uh, concern for infectious stones and i was not going to do for example say a pcnl um, which i think would hopefully reduce the risk of some post-operative infection and i wanted to make sure i was going to get a big ureteral access sheath in uh, at the time of surgery i would consider placing a stent ahead of time so i'd, I'd get a good you know 13 15 uh, okay. size access sheath. But in standard patient, typically not. But when we do stand, we do try to in clinic. I think it's feasible if you have a urodynamic suite in clinic, fluoroscopy. You can use a flexible scope and put it in and and save the patient that extra anesthetic time. But typically not.
0: So you do that on the local anesthesia?
2: Um, really no or anesthesia. Sedation. Truthfully, yeah, no, 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 no sedation, okay. just a fl- flexible flexible scope. Um, yeah. You have very good patients. No, they're very tolerant. <laughs> <laughs> very
0: tolerant. <laughs> <laughs> Brad, Brad, your thoughts on that pre-stenting before yeah. uh, flexible
1: uteroscopy? Again, I would I would agree with Noah, and, and uh, I, I think around the world there are different practice patterns, and I think people do it for different reasons. I think I think OR time and cost is is one of the big limitations that we have. I think just to stent somebody for the sake of making my job easier later uh, is not really in the patient's best interest. <laughs> Uh, there are a, a number of people. I go to Asia frequently, and I think a number of people in Asia do that because of their system and, and the way their system works, which is, which is fine. I think their their success rates are, are very good because of that. Um, the other thing that you know, when you asked uh, Noah about the mechanism of of drainage, I think we should also remember that you know part of the reason for a stent and part of the mechanism of action of a stent is, um, you know, there's a, a belief that there's a paralysis of the ureter starting. Uh, at the electrical impulse starting at the you know highest calyx, and so you know if you can paralyze that ureter and, and kind of make it a little more flaccid, there's the idea that it widens and it becomes uh you know much more capacious once you need to do a ureteroscopy. So I think that's the principle behind pre-stenting, uh, um, unless you have other thoughts. But you know the, with the way access sheets are now and with the way we have wires, the the, the size of the scopes that we use, uh, we don't really find that many ureters we cannot get up, and if we can't get up uh, without injury, then we uh, stent and come back at another time. Fantastic, thank you very much for
0: giving me your thoughts on that. What about after your atroscopy? You've treated, uh, you've dusted a nice one centimeter stone, procedure gone beautifully. Brad, would you reinsert a stent? If you would, I have some questions. How long do you leave the stent for? Do you ever use the tethered string?
1: Unfortunately, you know, Stenting after ureteroscopy, at least in my opinion, is going to be 100% subjective. Uh, it still is. I think it always has been. It probably always will be unless we can find some metrics that that uh, tell us differently. Clearly, if there's a ureteral injury, if there's uh, you know a grade two, grade three, if you're seeing fat, if you're seeing mucosal excoriations and such that you feel you need to leave a stent, I think that's a must. I think if you really uh, traumatize the UO, because I think that's where a lot of the problems occur postoperatively, you know, if you have to stretch out the UO and if there's a little bit of a a tear, if there's going to be a lot of edema at that ureteral orifice, I I just think you have to leave a stent. I definitely stent more than not after ureteroscopy, uh, just because when you come out and look at the ureter, subjectively, it is the gestalt that they're going to have problems postoperatively. Furthermore, in my patient population, I have a lot of patients come from a long distance. And that's the last thing I want is to have someone go home two hours and then they show up in their local emergency room. Uh, That benefits no one. Um, It does not benefit their local ER, the patient, or me. So I tend to stent more than not. If I think that they can take the stent for three or four days or maybe less than a week, I will leave strings on it or danglers, if you will, tethers. And again, it's totally subjective. I also have to take into consideration what their mindset is. If if the patient is nonverbal and they're not really very cooperative, to leave strings on could be a disaster and it might be more problems than it's worth. And again, how long do you leave them in? It's total subjective uh, subjectivity. I think if I leave the room and I say, oh yeah, that's a seven-day stent, then let's not leave strings on it. If it's a 10-day, six-week stent, let's not leave strings on it. If I can get by the strings on, I do because I don't want them to have to get another procedure to get the stent in.
0: Indeed, indeed. Thanks so much for your response there. Right. Noah, your thoughts, please. You put you've done a very un, un- uncomplicated your flexible ureteroscopy, a one centimeter
2: stone. It's gone beautifully. Do you put a stent in? How long for? I think I lean more on stents after uteroscopy, probably right. more than uh, what maybe is the average. I am very much indecisive about it until the end of the case. Uh, I, you know, it's it's all what the ureter looks like is we're pulling up a scope. If the ureter looks good, regardless of whether or not we had a sheet, if the ureter looks good and unirritated, if the UO looks good as Brad said, then I won't leave a stent. But because I use sheets, because a lot of people are not pre-stented, you know, I I see some ureter irritation. And the last thing I want, as Brad said, is that patient to have some sort of post-op complication from from not having a stent. Having said that, I do recognize that leaving stents also does lead to, you know, phone calls, ER visits, and so forth. But, you know, I think the, you know, the bigger concern for somebody who, say, develops obstructive pilo or real true uh, obstruction of the kidney can be can be a little more drastic. So, I um, know I lean I lean more on stents afterwards. As far as dwell time, you know, my standard is is about seven days, seven to ten days for somebody who had. You know, ureter injury, significant irritation, a really impacted stone, up to fourteen days. Fourteen days is pretty much the most, even if somebody had a grade one or two ureter injury. And for strings, I leave strings typically if it's in that shorter period. You know, maybe three days, five days, or somebody lives far away and can remove it. But I and typically beyond seven days, I, I don't leave. A, I don't leave a string. And who I will,
0: who's re- who's removing the string? Patients. They are do you have, they, patient pa- Patients pa- patient patient initiated, or yeah. do you have to seek healthcare? Uh, to delete to remove those strings.
2: Yeah, typically typically patient initiated. Um they can they can remove it at home. But I have some real, real hard and fast rules with that. I never secure it, never secure it to, to the leg, to the genitals or anything. Uh, I think a tegaderm on 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 a thigh or a tegaderm on on the genitals is, is 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 a really painful thing for patients to have to remove. And um and I always never remove it on a weekend. You can remove it on a Monday morning. Absolutely so always time that. Fantastic. I, the same thing. <laughs> I, I, I like your
0: thinking. So uh, another area of, you might consider slight controversy uh, controversies around laser technology. In the ureter, uh, we've got thillium fiber laser, the new kid on the block. Not so new now. It's been around two to three years. We're aware of some of the slight challenges uh, linked with uh, performing ureteroscopy, um, semi-rigid that is, with TFL. And also the whole intrarenal temperature and the, the the flow around there. I, I wonder your thoughts whether or not if you're using holmium laser or TFL, does that influence your decision to put a stent in? This is to you, Noah. Uh,
2: I, it doesn't really. Um, I mean, I think with, with TFL, we've learned a lot about energy settings, which I think has been transferred back to holmium. You know, we do leave less than 10 watts in the ureter. So I think the temperature concerns are um a little bit um yeah but it really is dependent on how the ureter looks when i'm done if it was a non impacted stone in the ureter and minimal irritation to the uo i won't i won't leave the stent uh, regardless of the technology i use so okay that's that's really helpful brad your thoughts
0: please
1: yeah I, I would agree i i think what i've really done is i've i've really affected my laser settings not necessarily whether i leave stents or not i think um, we, we tend to use a lot less energy than we originally thought we'd need for the, the TFL and have the same effect. I let it be the subjective measures that I use for any stenting, and that is the the effect and what it looks like in the ureter uh, on the That's way it. out. Thank you.
0: Now, another area that um, opinions differ on, on this is post ureteroscopy, how you place a stent. Uh, do you do it endoscopically with full vision? Or do you freehand it just using fluoroscopy? And we see, uh, you see videos of our colleagues all around the world have a totally different view. Brad, can I get your thoughts on this?
1: For me, it's a kind of a crapshoot to be honest with you. I, I do it all sorts of different ways. I think if it's yeah. a really hard stent and I need to make absolutely sure that that thing is going to be exactly where we want it, uh, you know, precision-wise, I will backload the wire. I'll take the time to backload the wire and do it yeah. correctly, as they say. Uh, we'll do it through the cystoscope and get it, you know, under fluoro where we need it and uh, curled in the bladder. Over the last five or six years, I've done a lot more of, you know, you pull the rigid ureteroscope out, you're done. Just leave the ureteroscope out and the wire is up there. And then, the, you know, your resident or you, whoever is assisting whom, can then just place the stent right next to the ureteroscope. You're under direct vision, but it's not over anything. It's just next to. That's been fine. And, you know, if you have, if you leave strings on the stent, you really, you don't have to worry about... F- floating the stent, right? If yeah. you put it up too far, all you have to do is pull the strings out under direct vision and you'll have the stent properly placed in the bladder. So I, I think the the one the one complication we underestimate, I think, in stone disease is urethral stricture and urethral injury. And the more you pass these scopes and the more you Good pass point. things, uh, you know, I think you're risking urethral injury. So I try to just make as, as few passes as possible. Even with a flexible ureteroscope, I'll just put that right next to the ureter. Uh, and then we can place the stent next to that uh, over the wire, and, and uh, we can place it uh, very accurately the vast majority of times. Excellent.
0: Thank you so much for that. Uh, Noah, your thoughts? Fluoroscopic yeah. guidance or cystoscopic or both?
2: I would say my standard is fluoroscopic. You know, after we're done pulling the sheath out, we have a safety wire in place, and uh, and we'll just go ahead and place the stent under fluoroscopy. With women, you know, I do not use a pusher, so you know the risk of floating is. Is is quite low. Um, I would say it, it should be zero because um, we're just you know essentially advancing the stent uh, over the over the wire up to the urethra and using our finger to kind of um, get the last little curl into the bladder. With men, yeah, we use the pubic symphysis as our as our marker, and typically the uh, radiopaque marker of the pusher mid symphysis is a, is a reasonable spot. Uh, I change that based on whether or not you have a, like a big, medium lobe. It might need a little bit further. And if we're not happy with the distal curl, then we'll go ahead and um, and take a look with the scope. Uh, the only times I have floated a stent, uh, knock on wood, is in men who have had prior prostatectomies. Uh, so I've learned that if they've had a prior prostatectomy, bottom of the symphysis as far as you want to go. Uh, and I and I haven't floated a sense since that using that rule. So um, yeah. That's really
0: helpful. Thank you very much for that. Um, another thought, uh, do you do retrograde uh before stent insertion, uh, Noah, on all your patients? Or are you quite comfortable that you know roughly uh, on the fluoroscopy where the kidney, the renal pelvis is?
2: Yeah, if, if we were doing ureteroscopy in the kidney, so this is like a post-reteroscopy case, and we know where the pelvis is, we know where the upper pole is, I've got a safety wire in, you know, which is going to be my stenton wire, um, so I typically don't do um, uh, um, polography. if um, if I'm placing a stent for, say, somebody who comes in infected, you know, I, I worry about a pylogram uh, increasing in pressure, but at the same time, you want to make sure that stent's in the right spot, you know, a, a, just a touch of contrast, just to confirm that you are either in the pelvis or an upper calyx, um, I think uh, is, is important um, at that point, but standard, okay. typically not.
1: No. Brad, your thoughts on that? We probably use uh, contrast more than not. I, I I, almost look at misplacing a stent in the proximal side as a never event. I just don't want to have that stent curl in the wrong position, especially in the ureter. I, I will tell you though that you know, at least in the United States about six months ago, eight months ago, we did uh, have a significant contrast shortage. And so we actually went to using no contrast uh, on any of our yeah. stent placements with rare exception. Uh, and you know you start to learn different things, right? You start to to become uh, adaptive to your surroundings, and so um, you know you you do flora with the ureteroscope up in the upper pole, and then you kind of uh, lock that in, and uh, you can kind of use that as your quote pylogram. So that's where the target of the proximal curl should be. I now do a mix. I, I don't I don't absolutely use uh, contrast on every single stent placement, but uh, as Noah mentioned, I mean if if it's difficult, if it's a septic patient, if it's a Kind of a must, a, a must do stent placement. Uh, I think you need to inject contrast to make absolutely sure you're not in a tortuous ureter, uh, you're not in a, in some other kind of area that's just not going to drain the kidney adequately. Indeed, thank you for that. I welcome your
0: thoughts really on the impact of a quality of life of the patients who has a ureteric stent. We've touched a bit on it uh, already. You know, the lead to unexpected visits to the, to the emergency department, taking time of work. Uh, you know, we're the one causing this for patients. I, I don't know whether you have any personal thoughts on this because I call it iatrogenic. You know, we've induced this to our patients. You know, you've done a beautiful operation half the time, but the, what the patient remembers is not your excellent work. It's that dreaded stent. I, I just wonder your your personal subjective thoughts on, on, on that, Dr. Noah. Yeah,
2: I think it's the worst thing we do to people. I mean, uh, you know, barring... Ridiculous, you know, uh, severe complications. But, uh, but uh, stent stent pain, stent colic is, uh, is 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 significant. However, you know, stents are for safety. I tell patients that all the time. I'm I'm putting this in not to not to cause you pain. I'm putting this in to be safe. Yeah. And in my practice, they they keep people safe. Um,
0: I must say, I, I like your eighty percent, ten percent, ten percent. Then I'm going to take yeah. that out. That's a good yeah. way to consent patients.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I, yeah, I typically tell patients is that, you know, 10% of patients really don't have much pain at all with their stent. I don't have an explanation why, but, but uh, they don't feel them as significantly, you know, 80% have uh, a significant discomfort to the point that, you know, they are bothered and can't wait to get them out. And then, and 10% are pretty severe. You know, patients who, you know, want to be admitted, going to the ER, um, lots of phone calls, um and it's hard to predict sometimes sometimes we can predict who's going to have pain uh, certainly prior history of stent pain is is, is a strong predictor so um yes yeah, stents, stents are a big problem i don't think we we found a solution to it but again yeah. i tell patients this is for your safety i put it in um uh,
1: for your safety so excellent and brad your thoughts on that I'm going to do a little HIPAA violation if that's okay, but I've had two stents, I've had, I've had three stones, and I've had two ureteroscopies. So I've had stents with tethers, and I've had stents where they had to go in the clinic and take it out. So I have a personal view on it. I can't agree more with Noah. I mean, it's one of the most aggravating things for me and my and my nurses and my my staff to field these phone calls. I don't know how true it is, and I, I would welcome anybody to chime in. But I think, you know, in the Midwest of the United States, we're in the in the right in the center of the, of America. And I think there has to be some geographical kind of uh, tolerability of stents. When my travels around the world, there are some geographical areas where patients just, they tolerate their stents fine, or at least the urologists think they tolerate the the stents fine. And in my area, my patients do not tolerate stents fine at all. Half of my patients would rather have a nephrostomy tube than a stent if they present acutely. Despite our copious pharmaceutical uh, uh, you know, regimen that we give them, the non-narcotic regimen of bladder relaxants and Flomax and, and finazopyridine and um, anything we can try to, you know, anti-inflammatories, anti-spasmodics, et cetera. I don't know what it is. We've had stents that have just a little hair like, uh, you know, dangler in, yeah. the, in the bladder. Uh, there's been some studies that suggest that if the stent crosses midline, that's going to increase your, your stent symptoms. But for me personally, it's geography. It's where I live. Our patients do not tolerate stents at all. Interesting. I mean, I think this is worldwide really,
0: depending on where you live geographically. But I think part of it is also the consent. Uh you um, making sure the patient is well informed. Do you ever bother with things like stent register at all where you where you work? Because you you both seem to be able to get stents out very quickly. In London, it's a nightmare. we have in a metropolis, we have people from all over the world that come through London. And we have a register where we keep all our stents so we don't lose patients. Is that ever an issue with you, Brad, in your practice?
1: So uh, I I think it's an issue in every practice, uh, uh, um, 100%. And so the fact is, we do not have a registry. We do not keep track of them. uh, And indeed, we have maybe two or three patients every year who come back for forgotten stents. I have to say, they're usually not ours, but I don't know where ours go. (laughs) I'm sure we have some. So... (laughs) I think it's a really good idea. You know, one of the one of the uh, a couple of the companies, uh, industry companies, have tried to do that. Um, you yeah. know, app based and yeah. and such. But I I don't really know where it's gone, and I don't know. I've not spoken to anybody who's had a really really good successful registry with good follow up uh, to assure a hundred percent. No, I don't know. It, I don't know if you guys do that in it, California or not.
0: Nor what what do you do? Do you have, do you bother with that register?
2: I mean, the EMR has a built-in way to, you know, track implants. But I mean, I, I tell residents. I mean, it's multifactorial, right? There, there's factors that we can control, and there's factors that we cannot. And 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 the patient factors. You know, some patients, despite educating them, you know, disappear and and don't come back. And and we, we try to track as much as possible. We know it's not 100 percent perfect because patients go elsewhere for the healthcare. Yeah, so it, it's it is a it is a, yeah, it is a challenge.
0: It is a problem. So with this in mind, I'd be interested to get your view on what is the ideal stent. Let's close on this. Pie in the sky. What would we be comfortable to insert? Brad, you've had this before. (laughs) So what would be the ideal stent? What would you consider the properties of an ideal stent?
1: Well, I think you'd have to look at it from the physician standpoint and the patient standpoint, right? From the physician standpoint, you want something that's easy to use, Easy to place, easy to see on fluoroscopy or ultrasound. You want something that drains, so you want something that's effective uh, in, in its design. In an ideal world, to prevent the registry issue, you want something that's going to stay in for exactly five days and dissolve and go away and never uh, be seen again. Uh, we've had we've tried those, right? We've had dissolvable stents for yes. a number of years, and, and none of them have ever really come to market. And so, and from the patient standpoint, uh, all the things we just mentioned, right? E- easy to to remove or, or, you know, easy to to have it disappear, uh, and and asymptomatic, it has to be somewhat comfortable. I mean, to me, those are by far the the yeah. optimal the optimal needs of a stent. I don't know what else we need to to have for them. And and I think inexpensive. I think we can't escape the cost. Maybe even biodegradable, so we can you know have a little less impact on the carbon footprint of, of everything we throw away. I know a stent is small, so it may not be contributing that much to, uh, you know, global <laughs> global emissions. But, warm, but, yeah. but but it, it is. I mean, every single thing we throw away has an impact, whether whether yeah. it's large or small. And so I think all those things would be important to me. I have no doubt that uh, our
0: colleagues in industry uh, would have listened to what you have to say, there, Brad, and hopefully they take it on board. Noah, your, your, any additional thoughts on what you think an ideal property of a stent should be?
2: I'll just agree with everything that Brad said. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of study on on stent stent comfort, and I, I think truthfully, uh, this is contrary to my practice. I think the ideal stent is no stent. I think the best way to try to manage patients is, is to minimize stent use. However, you know, given most of our patients, at least in my practice, require a stent, we have to probably work more on the patient counseling side, try to find better medication regimens to help these patients. And then you know, work on ways to try to get them back as quick as possible to get them removed. Because yeah, the longer we keep them in, obviously, the bigger, um, bigger the issue. But it is it is a it's a difficult problem. It's probably an underfunded problem as far as research goes. Uh, but it is probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, problem we deal with in endourology. So, indeed.
0: Well, gentlemen, we've come to the end of this highly educational podcast. And uh, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Dr. Bradley Schwartz and Dr. Noah Kambasa for their time in making this uh, podcast highly educational. Uh, thank you, Dr. Schwartz, and thank you, Dr. Kambasa, for your input in this uh, discussion on stents.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to participate, uh, and I enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Leah. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.